Well, good morning. It's always a little bit of a process getting ready at the pulpit during the time of masks. So I hope you're having a great week. Welcome back. We've got a whole bunch of people here today, and I'm just so happy to have people back in the house of God and just to be together and enjoying one another and to hear your voices raised in song. It's just, I'm so glad. I'm just so glad. It's been a long year. I don't know about you, but it's been a long year for me. Uh, Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're so glad to have you with us and that you're here just as much as the people who are sitting here. We're glad that you're with us. Today we're going to be continuing on in our series on the Gospel of Mark. We're using Mark as our guide through to Easter. We're moving through the Gospel as we approach that great day that we're going to be celebrating in just a few weeks. Today we're going to be speaking on chapters 11 and 12. That's where our focus is going to be today, so you can kind of tell where we're getting through in the book. So before we get in, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for today. Thank you that we could be together. Thank you for the rain outside, God. Thank you for the beautiful weather we've been enjoying. We pray, Lord, that you would open your word to us today that we would hear from you, that we would know you better by the end of this time that we have together, that you would leave us ready and excited for what's coming, and that we would be your people. Amen. If you've ever wanted to read two chapters of the Bible and have your idea of who Jesus is turned upside down, these two are a great pick, Mark 11 and 12. In these two chapters... Jesus is sly. Jesus is sharp. Jesus is catching his enemies in verbal traps. Jesus is not nice. This is an unusual pair of chapters, and it is a different view of Jesus than most of us normally get. Because this is it. This is the conflict. This is what this whole book has been leading to. This is Jesus' throwing down with the religious leaders. He is challenging their authority and he is revealing the corruption for all to see. And it is a challenge from which they cannot back down. Next week, we're going to have some private moments between Jesus and the disciples before Good Friday. But this week really is the end of Jesus' public ministry. One other funny thing that's happened is just on account of the way that our scheduling has happened, this week is Palm Sunday as far as our progress through the gospel is concerned. Even though next week is actually Palm Sunday in the church calendar, that's going to be part of what we're talking about today. So as we, as we approach this, this conflict, this public confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, there's something to bring up in regards to the gospel of Mark in particular. And there's this idea, and we've, we've seen it. We've seen it already coming up, and we've talked about it a little bit. I'm coming through. I think it's that base again, Whitney, if you can do something about that. But there's this, this theme that we've been seeing through the Gospel of Mark, and it is referred to in scholarly circles as the messianic secret. And this is this idea that Jesus doesn't seem to want people to know about him. It happens very early. Um, arguably, this happens a little bit earlier even, but the, the most for sure place I could see it happening first is in chapter 1, verse 44. Jesus heals the man with leprosy, and he says to him, see that you don't tell this to anyone. And the last place that I can find it 
is in chapter 8, verse 30, after Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, where Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And this has happened consistently in those eight chapters leading up. Jesus continuously performs a miracle, does a sign, heals someone, casts out a demon, whatever, as if one can whatever to the things Jesus was doing. But whatever it was Jesus was doing, he was constantly telling people, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. And it's, it's kind of strange. But we have this climax in chapter 8 where Jesus is declared the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. And since then, Jesus hasn't commanded anyone to silence. In chapter, the rest of chapter 8, in chapter 9, chapter 10, there have been no commands to silence and there are none in the rest of the book. Because in chapter 11, Jesus is in the open. Jesus is no longer going around the countryside as a quiet, backwoods preacher, traveling through the region of Galilee, healing people here and there, keeping himself a bit of a secret. No, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He is in the seat of power. He is in the the area of the temple, the, the region of the palace. All of these things, Jesus is in the open. And so these two chapters, they're tense. They're full of conflict. They're full of back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders, of of them trying to trap him and him, in turn, trapping them. Read them. Read them. They're so different, and they're so exciting. Let's let's have a quick review, though, just just in case you haven't been keeping up. Chapters 11 and 12, they open with the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, And the people call out, what do they call out? Hosanna, Lord, save us. They're quoting that psalm that we read this morning. Jesus makes himself very, very known. And he walks up to the temple and he looks around and he goes back. And the next day he comes out and then we have this very strange story where he curses a fig tree and then he goes into Jerusalem, makes a whip out of some cords drives everybody out of the temple courts. You remember the story? And then they come back from the temple and they go go back towards Jerusalem the next day and the fig tree that he cursed the day before has died. The disciples are blown away at this. That day, the leaders confront Jesus and they say, "You, you, you're the one who cleared out the temple yesterday. By what authority do you do this? And Jesus and them have a back and forth and he he's, has this wonderful witty line and he, he catches them in a trap and I won't spoil it for you because I want you to read it for yourself, but it's just so great. Then we have three quick stories where Jesus is again catching them in their hypocrisy. He's talking about their taxes to Caesar. He's talking about the marriage at the resurrection. He tells the parable of the tenants, a very damning story towards the religious leaders. We have the, the wonderful little bit about the, the greatest commandment where the, the teacher comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment, Lord? And he replies that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. The chapter concludes with a warning against the teachers of the law, possibly the most, shall we say, verbally violent statement that Jesus has made against the leaders of the temple system. And finally, the story of the widow's offering. These two chapters are almost entirely, it is almost two whole chapters of Jesus 
beating on the religious leaders, of him saying, you are corrupt and your time is done. Two whole chapters. So, what should we focus on today? What are you in the mood for? I think that if we're going to, I almost made about a two-hour sermon on this. Don't worry, I didn't. We're going to get to go home. Unless the rain's too bad, then I'll just keep going. But one of the things that we love to talk about with Jesus is the miracles that he performed. And the last miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Mark, curiously, is the cursing of the fig tree. This is the last one. Now, bear in mind, the resurrection is not Jesus' miracle, right? The Father raised Christ from the dead, so that's not a miracle Jesus did. So that's, that's why I get to say that. But the last miracle that Jesus performs is the cursing of the fig tree. And it's also worth pointing out that the Gospels, and especially John, but all the other Gospels do this too, they don't so much refer to miracles. I mean, they do say miracles, but often the word that they use is signs. They don't say that Jesus performed a miracle. They say Jesus performed a sign. They talk about the transformation of the water into wine, and this was the first sign that Jesus did. The, the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign from heaven because they point to something. They are acts that point to a reality beyond what they can see. And cursing the fig tree is a sign. But so is the clearing of the temple. It is a sign act. It's not a miraculous act, but it is an act that points to another reality. And together, those two stories form a literary device known as a Markan sandwich. Markan because it's in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a sandwich because, you know, there's one part of a story, and then there's another story in the middle, and then there's the end of that first story. There are six or seven of them in the Gospel of Mark. They're pretty common. And a great example that you're probably familiar with is the healing of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader, and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood, where Jairus comes to get Jesus, and he says, come, come, heal my daughter, and Jesus is going with him. And then while they're on the way, this woman with the issue of blood comes up in the crowd and touches the hem of his robe, and he tells her that by her faith she's been healed. And then he continues on and goes to see Jairus' daughter, who has now died. But he raises her because he tells them to have faith. And the middle part of this story, the part with the woman of the issue of blood, helps us to understand the story on the outside. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm talking about? Nod. Or fall asleep. You know, up to you. So let's read, let's read these two stories. Because that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Starting in... Chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd 
was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So, what does this mean? How can we understand this story? There are two strange things in this passage that I would like us to talk about. And the first strange thing is Jesus cursing the tree. That, that is a weird thing, right? That is a weird thing to do, especially because it was not the season for figs. <coughs> Excuse me. It is, a, it is a strange thing that Jesus did it. But to help us understand it, we should reflect back on the Mark and Sandwich structure. That is the middle part of the story that helps us to interpret the outer portion. And what is it that happens in the middle? In the middle of this story, Jesus goes to the temple and he drives the, the, the sellers and buyers out. He, he rejects the temple system. He's saying that this is no good and it's not going to happen anymore. Many people think that this was an issue of commerce, that Jesus didn't like that people were buying and selling, but the truth is that those buying and selling, those animals, that was an important part of being able to do what the temple did. The daily sacrifices had to happen, and if they couldn't bring merchandise, animals in this case, through the temple courts, they couldn't do the sacrificial system. It also, frankly, wasn't a very permanent fix if that's what Jesus was wanting to do, right? By the end of that day, I guarantee you those money changers had collected their money and the, the animal handlers had collected their animals back and the system was back in full swing by the next morning, right? If Jesus was trying to say you should not be buying and selling here, he didn't do a very good job. And that's why I think that wasn't the issue. But Jesus is expressing God's rejection of the corrupt and ineffective temple system. This temple system that has been dividing people, that has been keeping people from God, that has been dependent on so many things and has been so under the sway of political concerns. Jesus curses the fig tree. Fig trees have symbolized Israel through much of biblical literature. And in particular, the fig tree has symbolized the temple system. And this, this imagery comes up again elsewhere in the Bible. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable about an unfruitful fig tree where there's this fig tree that hasn't produced any figs and the owner says, let's tear it down. But the gardener says, give it, give it one more chance. Please give it one more chance. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Let me do what I can do. And next year, if it still doesn't bear any fruit, then you can tear it down. And this is, this is one of those stories that is, is pointing to how God is feeling about the temple system. He's saying, you are not producing fruit and we're going to need to do something different. And I want to be clear that this is not a rejection of Israel as a people. This is not about 
Jews or about Israelites or about those people. This is about the temple system. And we know that because Peter and Paul and so many other important Christians have been Israelites. And there are other examples throughout the Bible that God wants the people of Israel. This is not a rejection of the people. Romans 11 and Revelation 7 come to mind. Rather, God is rejecting the temple, which has become corrupt and ineffective and the whole system that is around that. And Mark is previewing, previewing what we're going to be talking about in just a few weeks. Mark is previewing that Jesus is the only way to God. Last week, we spoke about the transfiguration. Paul was here sharing with us, and we appreciated him so much. And in that story, we saw Jesus up on top of the mountain who was transformed before their eyes and he was joined by Moses and Elijah, and that those two men represented in themselves the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, everything that God has done before. And they're together, the three of them, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And Peter speaks to them and he says, let us build three tents. You remember the story from last week, right? You, re- you remember last week? But then they're covered in a cloud. And God picks out only one of them that he says, this is who you should listen to. The voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. And suddenly, it is only Jesus. I'm not saying that the Old Testament is unimportant. In fact, we're going to spend the next few months looking at many of the wonderful stories of the Old Testament. It is deeply valuable. But in terms of what is our primary, what is the way to God, Only Jesus remains. Only Jesus. There is a second weird thing in this passage that I'd like us to pay a little bit of attention to, and that is Jesus' response to the disciples. You remember Peter says, look, the, the tree is withered, and Jesus gives this strange response. He says, verse 22, have faith in God, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Why is Jesus talking about faith and prayer? Is is Jesus trying to tell us that if we just believe, if we just have enough faith that we too can kill fig trees? Is, is Is that what Jesus is getting at? Do you think, is Jesus trying to tell us that we can do our landscaping by faith? If we, you know, say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, that by faith we can do our landscaping and, and kill the trees that we don't want, and, right? right? Jesus is obviously being metaphorical here. That is obviously not what Jesus is getting at. But it's such a strange response. But remember, this whole thing has been about the temple and about the rejection of that temple system. Jesus is elaborating on that. Jesus is still talking about when the temple is gone, how will you pray? Because the people of Israel at that time, the God's people, their whole way of approaching God has been through the temple. Even in the early parts of the New Testament, we still see the disciples gathering at the temple, around the temple, to worship God. And Jesus' response is, if you um, ask, if whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That this isn't a question of needing sacrifices. This isn't a question of needing a priestly caste, a whole tribe set aside for the priestly duties of the temple. 
but that as long as we have faith and approach God honestly, that we'll receive what it is that we need. Jesus is rejecting the temple, but that God is not leaving us without a path to himself. The conflict with the religious leaders has reached a breaking point in these chapters. It is public, it is harsh, and it is in the seat of power. Jesus is building towards his final, his ultimate act, the thing that he has come here to do, and he is setting us up for that. And the best lesson that I can leave you with today is that we look forward to Easter. We look forward to those events of the Passion Week and we remember what it is all about because that is where we are going. We're building to Jesus' ultimate act and there's nothing more important that we could be focused on. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that we would remember the words that you have spoken to us today. We pray, Lord, that we would be focused on you, that our attachment to you, God, would not be through buildings and other people and systems that we've set up, Lord, but that we would know you through you, that we would be your people, not simply people of a church, but people of a God. We pray, Lord, that you would go with us. In your name we pray. Amen.